All right, welcome back. And joining us now is Jeff Fenpaul. Uh, he is author of many books and articles. We're going to talk to him specifically about uh, one recent uh, book. Uh, he's a professor of global history and economics at Leiden University in the Netherlands. And the book that we're going to begin talking about, of course, there's other ones that um, he's written that are touch on the same subject, is um, the uh, Not Stolen, The Truth About European Colonialism in the New World. And this is very important because, as we see everywhere, well, we've got to pull down the statues. We've got to rename the streets and the buildings and you name it, because somewhere somebody was involved in slavery or colonialism, and they stole the land. And so this is the basis on which um, the economy and the culture is being, um, the culture more than anything is being re reset. So joining us now is um, uh, Jeff. And uh, so thank you for joining us, Jeff. I appreciate you coming on. Thanks a lot for having me on, David. Thank you. Uh, let, let's talk a little bit about what happened in New York, because that is uh, probably the most recent and strangest event uh, that has happened with all of this you know, rewriting of history and, and culture. Uh, what happened at the New York uh, Natural, history, uh, Natural History Museum? Well, I mean, in 1990, they passed a law uh, with a really nasty uh, acronym, NAGPRA, and the idea was to, protect, <laughs> was to protect Native American bones that had maybe been robbed from grave sites. And so that's rather understandable. You can understand how that's a sensitive topic. But recently, under the Biden administration, they've started uh, broadening the rules so that almost any Native American artifact is now uh, difficult to display in an American museum. And the idea is, is that tribes should have sovereignty over all of these uh, artifacts. But the problem is a lot of modern tribes are not connected to artifacts that are hundreds or thousands of years old. So they've been given to tribes that didn't, they didn't really belong to in the first place. And then the other thing that's going on is that um, these things are basically being removed from displays. So what we're seeing is the closure of a lot of uh, Native American history museums. And the left is always saying, hey, we need to reclaim Native American history, but this is such a weirdly counterintuitive move. <laughs> They're literally erasing Native American history from these museums so that neither Native Americans nor the general public can understand their own history. That's There's amazing. a lot of weird, weird things going on. Yeah, well, you know, when you want to memory hole things, you got to do it, eventually you do it to everybody, right? If you're going to memory hole history, you've got to do it, all of it or none of it. And and it's kind of interesting to see that this is a, a bill, a, a, a law from the 1990s. I was just talking uh, to somebody else um, uh, on Tuesday. We we're talking about the 1994 FACE Act. And the Biden administration is taking some of these laws from the 1990s and using it in a way that they've never been used before in, in the intervening 30 years or so. And, and so it is interesting to see how they're weaponizing these things and, and extending them uh, in ways that uh, perhaps they were never intended to be because they haven't been <laughs> haven't been used like this since uh, for you know three decades since their creation. So I think there's a, this is a very novel take on a lot of different laws. This is kind of a, a recurring theme of the Biden administration, isn't it? Absolutely. And I mean, you know, so they they expand these powers and they claim that they're helping Native Americans. At first, it looks like this is a, just a sop to the DEI people. But you really wonder who this is benefiting. And I think it's benefiting only a few people in a few tribes who maybe want to have more control over these artifacts. But ultimately, all they're doing is is basically destroying scientific evidence 
mm-hmm. on which we can create Native American history. Now, who might benefit from that? I think it's really people who are afraid of history because they want to sell such a left-wing vision of history that they don't even want it to uh, be contradicted by any real facts. Yeah, yeah. They can invent the whole thing out of whole cloth. Isn't the uh, Natural History Museum in New York, isn't that the one that was at uh, Night at the Museum, if I'm thinking of that? Is that the same yeah. one? Yeah, I mean, okay. it's so such a long, <laughs> such a long history, I mean, founded by Teddy Roosevelt, and uh, it's been collecting artifacts that scientists have been using for over 100 years, and now all of this evidence is being literally reburied. It's being broken up. It's, it's going to disappear forever. And, and I think they had uh, a Teddy Roosevelt statue that had Sacagawea or something there, right? And did they remove that? They were talking about removing it. Were they successful in doing that? Or well, I'm not sure what actually happened with that controversy, but yeah, I know that anything like that nowadays is embattled in it. It seems like right now it's only a matter of time until it goes. It's, it's much like what we see with, um, you know, well, we've got to remove Robert E. Lee, but then they come after Ulysses Grant as well. <laughs> yeah. know, or they come after an abolitionist as well. I mean, they can't even be consistent with their own rationale. They just really want to get rid of everything. So you go to the Natural History Museum, get rid of uh, uh, Teddy Roosevelt, you get rid of Sacagawea and all, <laughs> and then all the other Indians as well. And, and it's interesting that they did it so quickly. You said it's a 10,000 square foot area that they had there, the Indians. And uh, it took them uh, just a few hours to take that down the end of January. Yeah, absolutely. And the thing is, is when they reopen these halls, we've actually seen because they they did this with one of the halls at the same museum. They DEI wash it in such a way that people's ancestral stories are told as facts and scientific facts are shunted aside. Mm. So if somebody says, my grandfather told me the story, no matter how crazy it was. That now gets presented to the public as fact. Mm-hmm. That's obviously doing a disservice to to everybody. Yes, yes. And, and it was uh, just also in, in uh, January where they tried to uh, get rid of William Penn. Uh, they're going to um, remove him from uh, his exhibit and uh, put up Indian uh, information, they said. And the Indian tribes that were there were, were some of the people who were pushing against it. I mean, it's because of local resistance that they were able to stop that. And the Indians said, no, he was a he was a good guy. He was a friend to us, you know. And and uh, so they were able to stop it there. You see this in many cases. You're talking about uh, a lot of these artifacts are very, very old. And they're not sure really what tribe they belong to. But in many cases, I know when you're from Florida, as well, I see in your bio here, um, you had Florida State University. They were, there was a pressure campaign to try to get rid of the term Seminoles. But the Seminole tribe said, no, we're honored by that. And, yeah. and so it is strange to see this. And in many cases, it's not being uh, done by some people uh, within the uh, Indian groups. It's being done, as you point out, uh, people who are, are pushing this uh, wokeism. I, I refer to it as Marxism because uh, it really yeah. is the same type of tactic that the Marxists yeah. used. Uh, Shiva and Fleet's been very good about uh, saying, you know, this is this is exactly what they were doing in China. You know, <laughs> it doesn't yeah. have anything to do uh, with uh, slavery or different uh, indigenous people groups. This is just a tactic that, that they use. So let's talk a little bit about your, your book, uh, Not Stolen, because that is one of the key things. Identifying people as colonizers, implying that we're thieves, descendants of thieves, and therefore uh, all of this stuff has to be eradicated, rewritten, and reallocated with re- uh, reparations and that type of thing. Uh, talk a little bit about that book, Not Stolen, The Truth About European Colonialism in the New World. 
Well, you know what? I totally agree with you that this is originally a Marxist idea. It's a very 19th century idea of how society works that says there's only two groups, oppressor and oppressed. Mm -hmm. And so they come up with the idea that if you're the colonizer, you are always the oppressor, you're always bad. If you are the colonized, then you're always innocent, you always do everything right. And again, we got rid of this idea in the history profession after the 1960s and 70s, after the hippie movement died down, we, we got some sense and we realized that reality is multifaceted. It's not always A versus B. So what we see now with social media is the resurgence of the simplistic 19th century Marxist idea where instead of the bourgeoisie and the proletariat it's it's the europeans and indigenous people or it's white people and black people or men and women yeah. um and so what they're trying to do is rewrite history to take out all the cases where europeans were good were decent were noble were moral uh, where they were trying to help the native americans they also try to erase all the times when native americans were nasty to each other genocidal wars slavery all that stuff <laughs> And mm -hmm. so the, the premise of the book is to say, let's turn the clock back to the 1990s or the early 2000s when historians had a balanced view of Europeans and Native Americans. There were saints and sinners on both sides. Mm -hmm. But now since the rise of BLM, I suppose we're not allowed to say anything uh, good about Europeans or anything bad about Natives. And that's frankly completely unscientific. Mm -hmm. No historian should support that. And of course, uh, kind of seminal to all of that was the 1619 project. I'm sure that's a core part of your book addressing that. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, they say in the opening paragraphs, we want to rewrite American history to put slavery as the fulcrum around which all of American history revolves. And again, any historian worth their salt knows history has multiple causes and effects. There's no one thing around which everything revolves. So it's an ideological project. It's trying to create a discord where there used to be a consensus. And it's frankly kind of a resurgence of uh, 1960s Black Pantherism. Yes. It's, it's that kind of Marxism. And it has no place in a, in a modern uh, scientific field. And, and of course, the weather underground at the same time, Bill Ayers and his people started talking about white skin privilege. They didn't invent it, but they started popularizing it. And then he, you know, after he stopped bombing buildings, he started bombing mines and the educational system uh, with the idea of uh, white privilege. Uh, but yeah, that was uh, it was all really kind of a, a Marxist tactic because they realized that uh, it wasn't working to talk about uh, pe people, uh, the Americans believe that they had economic mobility. And so the kind of class warfare based on economic classes that they used in Europe wasn't working here. So they had to do something along the lines of uh, racial division and conflict, right? Well, I mean, if you look, black families in America have on average been uh, more and more wealthy every decade. And then we have the election of a black president in 2008. And I think the left started running scared. And they said, unless we create a new narrative, a new division, black people and white people are actually going to get along and everybody's going to, um, you know, help create a, a better American society. That, that was like their worst nightmare. Yes. And so they come back with this 1960s, 70s stuff. Yes, yes. And and so, you know, when you talk about this, um, are you focused, uh, are you focused on uh, the U.S. predominantly or do you also look at um, uh, the implications as they're being used in the U.K.? Because they're also tearing down statues there based on slavery because uh, the U.K. was central to the to the slave trade. Of course, uh, 
no credit is given to those people who stopped the slave trade and then the uk uh you know basically paid uh, stopped slavery by paying off the plantation owners they don't talk about that aspect of it of course it is very um it is very transparently one-sided in their discussion of all of it but but give us a, an idea of the scope of your book yeah well i mean i have become a professor of global history here in the netherlands they're a small country and they think about the world at large and so i was an historian of the spanish empire but i also knew a lot about more recent economic history so i just started taking on these big picture ideas you know so the book covers 500 years of of uh, european colonialism and contact with the natives and it also talks about um latin america a little bit mexico but also North America, so the United States and Canada, with a, with a real focus on the U.S. But I start out with the beginning of European colonialism with the Spanish, because there's so many things people think about Columbus, they think about the Aztecs and Cortez, and there's so many stereotypes that people have been told, which are frankly just plain wrong. Mm -hmm. um, most of the people in the New World actually lived in Mexico or in uh, the Incan Empire. There were very few in North America. And when you look today, most of the population of Mexico, 80% of them are mixed Spanish and indigenous. Very few people are actually European, uh, you know, full-blooded European. So mm -hmm. if the Spanish were trying to commit genocide or move uh, the natives out of the way, uh, they did a terrible job. And in <laughs> North America, there were so few people that by 1820, European settlers outnumbered the natives 100 to 1. Wow. which is what we still see today. So these ideas of genocide and settler colonialism need to be addressed by looking at the bigger picture. Yes, yes. Uh, talk a little bit about the 1619 Project, because one of the things that really concerns me, and that, that date I think was picked uh, to, to try to preempt uh, the American tradition of the Mayflower in 1620. So we're going to erase that, and we're going to make this all about slavery. And, uh, of course, this is something that the Marxists have been focused on extensively, especially at Harvard. Um, you had uh, Pete, um, I call him Boudigay, but uh, his, his mentor there, uh, Sakvan Berkovich at, at Harvard, was always about uh, deconstructing everything in terms of how uh, Puritans and um, uh, you know Protestant America had ruined everything. So he would that was his kind of uh, his, his worldview, his lens of everything that he would uh, deconstruct everything by taking it back to those roots, those evil roots. And so it, it seems to me like that was a part of it as well. But uh, for the early decades, um, the uh, how do you see this? Uh, they dismiss it as a myth. I think that um, maybe it's not, but I'd like to know your opinion as a historian. Uh, the fact that um, the early pilgrims who went uh, to um, uh, from the Mayflower to that area seemed to get along for several generations with the Indians that were there for the most part. What do you Gee, think? imagine that. Yeah. So, I mean, the idea is originally to discredit capitalism by saying that the roots of capitalism in America were based on slavery, which has now been thoroughly debunked by economic historians. But most historians today aren't trained in economics, so they can't even really read that literature. Um, and that's real important because that's what the basis of the reparation stuff as well. So you get into exactly. the, the numbers and the figures in yeah. your book. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that's the thing. I can actually come up with numbers and figures, which most of my colleagues are happy to breeze over and or they their heads spin if they even think about them. But talking about racism and getting along for the first couple of centuries, I mean, all the way up till the end of the 
1700s, most Europeans believed that Native Americans were, quote, born white, and this may sound a little weird, but they actually thought they were the same race as Europeans because they were from the same latitude. So they didn't think uh, skin color was based on race back then. They thought it was based on where you lived in relation to the to the sun or to the equator. So <laughs> they actually thought Native Americans were the same race as them. They didn't even use the term red man until after 1800. Mm. So the idea that their hatred of natives was based on racism is completely fallacious. There's just absolutely uh, no truth to it at all. They thought we were all descended from Adam and Eve. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and you see so many sources that say, these people are just as clever as we are. The only difference is our technology level. Yes, yes. And that really, you say, descended from Adam and Eve, I've mentioned that many times, is I've heard it said, um, you know, from a Christian perspective, uh, there's only one race, that's the human race. The only difference is the direction that we're racing. <laughs> and the yes. Christians would say, are you racing toward God or away from God? And the skin color doesn't really matter. Uh, no. and, and so for, that is, it's interesting that uh, that Christian perspective has been there for many, many centuries. It's nothing new. Absolutely. Yeah. And so, um, you know, there were there were some scruffs on you know one side or the other. You had King Philip's War after several decades, and some other things like that. But the, these are the types of things that you know happen, um, and it's you know happen within uh, different European groups. Same groups will go to war with each other. You have civil wars. You have wars between different uh, groups. You have uh, recrimination uh, because of. Um, uh, somebody committing a crime in one community or the other, that type of thing would happen, but it had been peacefully adjudicated. And um, it was um, uh, not the kind of um, um, the the environment that has been depicted in 1619. Talk to us yeah. a little bit about the economics without, uh, I know that, you know, we don't have uh, the paper in front of us to look at the numbers, uh, but talk a little bit about the economics aspect of that, because that's very important in terms of uh, the reparations thing that is being passed around. And of course, money being added to grievances, that's going to be a very powerful political tool for them to, uh, to uh, wield. So talk a little bit about uh, reparations. Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, you need to think about numbers and how many Native Americans there actually were, how many were being wronged. Uh, you see major websites saying, for example, that Columbus killed 7 million people in Hispaniola, the little island where he first landed. But they recently did a genetic study and found that there were only 30,000 people living there when Columbus <laughs> arrived. I mean, so that's the kind of crazy numbers that we're seeing. Mm -hmm. So you can imagine that any other economic figures, any kind of numbers at all, are very difficult to pin down if we can't even get the population figure right. We see claims for reparations, uh, you know, again, some of the universities in the Midwest, things like that coming up today. And the real question is, how much was that land actually worth? So in the 19th century, most native tribes were still in the Midwest anyway, were hunter gatherers. And so there might only be a couple thousand people living in an entire modern state. That's, you know, hunting and gathering does not produce many calories per acre at all. <laughs> so once you turn to farming, as Thomas Jefferson said, these people now only need about one one thousandth as much land to farm as they used to need to hunt. And natives themselves started using firearms. They started living near the settlers because they were a source of gunpowder, firearms, uh, iron tools, things like that. And then the natives themselves helped deplete the game. So sooner or later, they were going to have to turn to farming. 
And then the land, once you farm it, becomes much more valuable. It's much more productive. And then the, the uh, white settlers start building roads, which connects it to the ports, which creates uh, more value in the land. So uh, if people are claiming value for land today, it's been developed for 200 years. Uh, 200 years ago, it was literally empty scrub with a couple deer on it. Yeah. Um, and a lot of times those payments have already been made and settled in court years ago. And of course, people just bring them up again because it's basically a free handout. And it was very disrupting. Uh, they they started um, deconstructing some of those things in Oklahoma and and created uh, a great deal of um, of unrest and uncertainty. Uh, and of course, we're just talking about uh, reparations from the Indian side as well. Uh, but that that's fascinating. The fact that um, you know when you look at the the scale of people that were here, as you mentioned, with Columbus and with other issues, uh, maybe that's one of the reasons why they want to shut down these Indian museums so they can stop actually finding out uh, real scientific information uh, about uh, the population that was there and and how extensive it was and and what was happening there. Maybe shut that down and tell some uh, happy stories uh, from a different political perspective. Maybe that's the motivation, huh? Oh, I'm afraid so. I think there are some groups who really do want to shut down the history and erase that history because it doesn't uh, go with their own narratives uh, in the current day, which would entitle them to more handouts. They don't want you to know their tribe was only in a given area for 100 years before the white man arrived, that mm-hmm. they had picked out several other tribes before they arrived. I mean, history is a lot more complicated than they want you to think. That's right. And, and you know, it, it, it's, it's portrayed in a very simplistic way that um, the only conflict is between uh, white Europeans and uh, the American Indians that were there. And yet they had a great deal of conflict with each other uh, as well. They had slavery internally with each other, as did every society. And that's why I mentioned, you know, when you talk about um, not stolen uh, you know, slavery in turn, it's a global situation. So it's, a, it's a, a common thing throughout human history, but it's always portrayed as something that is uniquely European. And uh, oh, that yeah. is what these people are portraying it as in order to get reparations. Absolutely. And I mean, so every Thanksgiving, you see all of these articles appear online that mention King William's War, that mention a couple of massacres. But as you pointed out, uh, there were often decades in between these wars between Europeans and natives. Um, And the Europeans were living in scattered uh, houses all amongst the natives. Clearly, that's because for generations, they had no trouble with them at all. Mm -hmm. So, you know, everyone was trusting each other, everyone was living with each other. So the idea that there was a constant warfare, that Europeans were taking slaves, um, was not the case. Meanwhile, um, in Massachusetts, many tribes thanked the Puritans for imposing a peace in a huge swath of eastern Massachusetts, which they said, a peace uh, the likes of which we have never known, already within 10 years. Mm-hmm. That's what the Indians were saying to the colonists. Thank you for imposing this peace because they used to enslave each other. So they were constantly at war, constantly in danger of being slaughtered or enslaved. And of course, it's that kind of tribalism that they uh, our current government is trying to reestablish. Uh, you know, yeah. for the longest time, we had that commonality, the the uh, people who were settling it uh, there, they saw everybody as um, uh, descended from Adam and Eve, all as uh, created by God, all as human beings. And so it was that commonality, as they said in the Mayfire Complex, uh, part of the reason that they wanted to come 
uh, to a new land was to uh, spread Christianity. And that was part of the Christian ethic that is so despised was the fact that they wanted to uh, bring out the commonality in people rather than focus on tribal differences. And those kinds of tribal differences, as they emphasize that now, that's going to take us back into a conflict uh, that was um, uh, already there in, in so many different ways. Talk a little bit about um, uh, colonialism and slavery and uh, other areas besides uh, America. Yeah, well, I mean, what most people don't realize is that the Aztecs were huge uh, slave drivers. Not only that, but that when they enslaved people, they often uh, brought them as part of the human sacrifice machine. Their religion was based on, they're saying maybe twenty or 30,000 human sacrifices at the Aztec capital per year. Wow. There's suspicions that these people were used for, for protein because they didn't they had killed off all the megafauna when they first arrived, so there weren't many large animals, so maybe this is what was going on. But anyway, there were huge slave networks all across Mexico. When Cortez first arrived, he was gifted 20 women by a local chief. These women had basically been used as slaves um, and uh, had been trafficked from across Mexico. And uh, so Cortez was encountering vestiges of this, uh, this thriving slave market uh, mm-hmm. when he first arrived. That was just part and parcel of the way the world worked down there. And how did they react to that? Did he, um, uh, what did he do with those slaves? Did he uh, continue in that tradition or? Uh, well, that's the wild thing about Cortez is he, <laughs> one of these women turned out to be exceptionally bright and a charismatic leader, and he used her as an interpreter for the Aztec court. It turned out she had been raised as a noblewoman, and her name is Marina. Cortez took her as, a, uh, as his mistress and had a son by her who he later ennobled. Uh, the Pope actually um, gave him the title of Duke, uh, and so he was raised even though he, he was a mestizo. Mm-hmm. Uh, to this to this great uh, glory mm-hmm. and marina basically helped cortez conquer the uh, aztec empire as did tens of thousands of other native warriors the, who made the bulk of cortez's army so the spanish then imposed something nobody ever talks about which is a pax hispanica on all of mexico these tribes were not fighting each other now for the first time in history they weren't enslaving each other they weren't uh, sacrificing each other and uh, so the quality of life for the average person, once they survived the diseases that the Spanish accidentally brought, mm-hmm. um, then uh, the quality of life for them increased dramatically. And, and so what was, as uh, a, a PAX, um, um, the, a piece that they imposed across uh, Mexico, uh, yeah. and, and it was, uh, but uh, when, how is this portrayed by the uh, left? Uh, differently well, that's from that. just it. Yeah, yeah, I mean, the left doesn't want to talk about that at all, right? So they'll say, oh, 100,000 people died in, in Cortez's wars. They want to leave it at that. If you Google it, it'll say 8 million people were killed in Cortez's wars. Um, that is highly contentious. And at least 90% of those if uh, of people who did die uh, died of disease, which, again, in the 17th century, nobody could control or the 16th century. Mm-hmm. Um, so... The left will uh, completely ignore the fact that the human sacrifice was stopped, that the tribal warfare was stopped, that there had been forced removals and genocides that no longer occurred. Uh, And frankly, anything they don't want to hear, such as in the 19th century, the United States introduced smallpox vaccines to Native Americans, saving tens of thousands of lives. All those facts just kind of go unmentioned, shall we say, by my colleagues. 
That's interesting. And, and so when we look at it in terms of um, reparations, is there a reparations movement outside of America? Or is this something that is really kind of spearheaded by the um, American Marxists? Are they using this for political purposes elsewhere um, throughout Central and South America? Well, you know, it really started with um, the kind of new Black Panther movement, the sort of BLM movement. Uh, around 2016, they started calling Bernie Sanders a racist for refusing to support reparations. I mean, all these, all these crazy things. Um, and it really spread from there. So the British are getting some of this from former uh, uh, members of the British Empire, where the British were involved in the slave trade. Um, and then indigenous groups across the world have taken, have gotten on the bandwagon, if you will, because they realize there's political win behind this, these sales for reparations. Uh, but they still mostly um, come from the African, pan-African slavery movement. Now, remember, 90% of the slaves um, coming to the New World did not go to the United States. They went to Brazil and other places. But in Latin America, people are still a little bit more chilled out. They realize that Columbus is kind of, you know, they're mestizo. A lot of these people are mixed European and native. They see Columbus as one of the fathers of their race and also their native ancestors as the other fathers of their race. And so they're not quite as into this reparations idea as we are in Western Europe and the U.S. So they're not tearing down a Columbus statues uh, uh, like they're trying to do. There not, in the as United States. Yeah. not as much. That's interesting. Um, so um, when uh, when you look at this from a standpoint of reparations, again, I think uh, probably the um, the information that you have bringing truth to uh, the size of the population, the econo economics that are involved there. I think that is, is, is going to be a key for people in terms of takeaway from your book. Uh, I think that's probably one of the most important things uh, that people could get from. What, what are the other lessons that you would uh, suggest that people can learn from your book? Yeah, well, I mean, pretty much any of the stereotypes that you hear about stolen land, for example, or about genocide, uh, for example, or even the Trail of Tears, these are things that we used to have a balanced scientific idea about, but which now you're only allowed to believe one extreme version of what happened. So, um, you know, for the first 200 years, the Europeans in North America were very content to just stay along the coast and have trading forts. I mean, they made a proclamation line in 1763, which basically said no one's going to settle west of this ever. They thought the Native Americans were going to be in control of 90% of the continent in perpetuity. So the idea that the Europeans arrived with the idea of stealing the land is, is totally wrong. They actually, there was a huge real estate market thriving real estate market where natives would sell land and get gunpowder and tools mm -hmm. you know so people forget this stuff all the time even the trail of tears it was one of the most shameful episodes in american history Sixty thousand natives were removed to oklahoma from the southeast but even then the u.s supreme court uh said that this removal was illegal and ordered jackson not to do it you know, and so people are saying, oh, the U.S. is this genocidal country. Look at the Trail of Tears. The U.S. Supreme Court itself forbade this to happen. And many members of Congress protested. Some Davy Crockett was a congressman. He actually resigned in protest at the removals. Mm -hmm. uh, intellectuals and the public were in a huge uproar. Martin Van Buren, who was the vice president, said, wow, this was the biggest public uproar we've ever seen in the United States against any political action. 
So that says to me, there's a lot of good in American society, even in the 1830s, goodwill towards the Native Americans that my colleagues are absolutely refusing to acknowledge. I mean, there's a book out called Surviving Genocide about the Trail of Tears, and they're pretending that it was a genocidal movement. It was not uniformly approved by any means. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. And I talk about that many times when I talk about the Supreme Court. Everybody's saying, well, the Supreme Court's made its decision, that's done. I said, no, uh, you know, Jackson said, uh, well, you made your decision, let's see you enforce it. <laughs> yeah. What do you want to do, right? And, and yeah. the interesting thing about that is that the Supreme Court at first said, well, you can do it. Then when they saw it, it in practice, they, they changed their mind within about a year, I think it was, and, and said, no, you can't do that. And so as you point out, you know, it, it is, um, there's a very simplistic um, notion that is being sold to people that's the basis of, of all of this, um, you know, Project 1619, all the rest of this stuff. They want to paint everybody in these very simplistic stereotypes. It's kind of ironic because they're always complaining about stereotypes, and yet they're creating their own stereotypes out of all this, aren't they? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, it's ridiculous. I mean, they're pretending that the settlers and natives never got along, but you open up any source and you see they're all camping out in the same village together for weeks and months on end, obviously trading with each other, communicating with each other, most of the time getting along very well. So even stereotypes as simple as that. Yes. And and, and I'm, I, I can't remember the details now, but it seems like there was something about... Um, what kicked off all of this stuff uh, were some complaints, but locally, I think there was, um, uh, wasn't it somebody who was selling them uh, Bibles and was a, a friend of theirs or something that was trying to intervene uh, at the, the beginning of the uh, Cherokees being removed? Uh, may you, as a historian, you probably know more details about that than I do. What was it that kicked that off? It seems like even at the very beginning and even at the local level, before it went up to Washington, there was uh, a lot of uh, movement and support of the Cherokees there locally from the Europeans. Oh, yeah. Well, there were several missionaries who had gone down there. They had taught the Cherokees how to read and write. They helped them create their own alphabet. They set up a newspaper. Samuel Worcester was one of the missionaries whose uh, case was later brought to the Supreme Court against the removal. So, I mean, he was instrumental in helping to bring the Supreme Court case. Uh, and so, and then for generations afterwards, there were people who went along with the natives to Oklahoma to help make sure the soldiers weren't too mean to them, to help them set up stores. Um, and, you know, even Jackson, even his officials were thinking, because gold had just been discovered uh, in Georgia, they were thinking that they really ought to remove the natives for their own good because there were so many squatters moving onto their land that nobody could properly control. I mean, this was frontier territory. The natives were outnumbered maybe 50 to one by this point. And so there's even arguments, some historians have made this in good faith, that this was actually the best thing to move them beyond the borders of the United States at the time. So again, we see lots of countervailing logic and reasons happening on the ground that you really need to understand the historical sources before you can judge. Yeah. Yeah. And, and of course, there was a lot of uh, interconnection in many different ways. Um, you know, the, the Cherokee got along very well with the Europeans in general. I don't think there was there wasn't really any any uh, violent conflict. I don't think there was a lot of intermarriage. There was a lot of cultural exchange, religious exchange. When it came time a few decades later, about 30 years later, when the Civil War happened, Cherokee were supportive. Of course, they didn't like the fact that the federal government had removed them. I'm sure that had something to do with it. But there were close ties to um, the people in the area between the Cherokee. Didn't they? It seems like they um, I don't recall any uh, 
any conflicts uh, like you would see in some other areas out west. Yeah, well, I mean, the fact is half of the Cherokee leadership, a lot of the major players such as uh, Major Ridge were at this point um, half Cherokee, half European. Mm -hmm. There there was a Native American practice of adopting people into your tribe. So most of the leaders were were part uh, European. Many of them had been educated back east. There were some Indian schools that had been set up by missionaries for the idea of uh, uh, making them literate so that natives could support themselves and make legal arguments in Washington. Um, so there was actually, Major Ridge himself had actually fought with Jackson in a previous campaign against the Seminoles. So they all knew each other, mm -hmm. uh, these elites. So the, the native elites and European elite, many of the natives didn't even uh, want to go with the tribe because they already owned land outside of tribal land. They were already running farmsteads and other businesses. So there was so much interaction on the ground, intermarriage on the ground. Uh, people knew what was coming for years before the removals. Um, so this was no surprise. So the tribes who did get removed knew what they were signing up for. They had all been offered farms uh, instead of removal, which they refused. You know, and that was done on a political vote. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, when you know the details... Uh, it's it's once again a lot more complicated and messy. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I've uh, I've talked many times about it, mainly from the Supreme Court standpoint, and um, a little bit about um, you know knew a little bit about the uh, the missionaries and their connection to them. Uh, I did not know that there were Europeans who accompanied them out there. What was the basis though that that began? Uh, was a justification uh, for removal? Where did that all come from? Yeah, well, I mean, even as late as, as Jefferson's presidency, even a little bit after that, the idea was that the natives in the southeast had been granted this land. Uh, it was because the land was granted by U.S. property right, they were not ever going to be removed. Mm -hmm. And so this is one of the reasons why there was so much outrage when uh, Jackson started this process to actually uh, remove these natives beyond the Mississippi. Um, and that's why the Supreme Court was willing to, to stand up for their property rights. I mean, so the idea had long been, all right, they can't be hunter-gatherers anymore. Let's give them title to land, and this will protect them. And I think the real outrage that Davy Crockett had was that, look, these people now own title to land. We can't just transfer human beings off their own property. Mm -hmm. And that's what caused a lot of the real fight. Mm-hmm. And, and what was the justification that the people were trying to remove them from? What was their justification for taking them yeah. off the land so well, they I had mean, the, the treaty in it? It, it, came, it became politically uh, expedient to do this after the gold rush in the, in the Southeast. So, I mean, there were, there were a couple of U.S. mints that minted only gold coins. I think at Delona, Georgia, and uh, in Charlotte, I think, in North Carolina. And so once gold was discovered there, there was a huge rush of settlement into that land. There were skirmishes. If the Indians retaliated, they'd get massacred by, you know, 20 times as many white people as they had warriors. Mm -hmm. And meanwhile, the natives had actually been starting to increase in numbers. They were actually doing well on their lands there. Um, and so the Jackson was partially elected on the idea that he was going to free up this land for settlement. Um, by whites, even though the federal government disapproved and almost every northerner disapproved at the time. Wow. 
So it's basically, uh, uh, we found gold, and so we got to rethink this treaty. Yeah. <laughs> that's what was going on, yeah. Well, that's yeah, interesting. Yeah. But as you point out, you know, even though the origins of it, the basis of it was, was bad, you had people on both sides uh, uh, and people who were allies for doing the right thing. And I think it is a, it's an important thing for us to understand the, the reality of history, that it's complex, it's not one-dimensional, it's not very simple-minded as uh, people who are propagandists want to present it. And we've had very simple-minded uh, versions of history in the past that went the other direction, fell off the other direction. And now we're getting a very simple-minded uh, direction of, of, of history. So it's good to have books like yours that put the things in context. Uh, there's going to be good and bad people on both sides. There's good and bad in every person. And so, of course, we're going to have uh, uh, good actions and bad actions on both sides of this. Uh, it, it's um, it's very interesting, especially, um, Jeff, in, in, in this area. I, I live in this area of, of uh, you know, the Gatlinburg area and that type of thing. So mm-hmm. the Cherokee thing is something that I find to be very interesting, uh, especially yeah. since the, the connections to the Europeans seem to be so strong and the injustice at the same time was also there. But as you point out, uh, there are people on both sides, Davy Crockett, other people in the Supreme Court who tried to stop this uh, at that time. Um, give us a, an idea. We've got a little bit more time here. Give us a little idea of um, uh, of uh, Canada, for example. What, what was happening there? Now, is there any push for reparations in Canada? I would imagine with the liberal government, they're trying to find something there. But was there a, a great deal of conflict in Canada? Well, I mean, so, yeah, let's just say with the liberal government in Canada in the last few years, uh, the reparations movement has really gone into overdrive. Uh, An enormous amount of Canadian federal money has gone towards the tribes in recent years. They're saying that the tribal budget is growing faster than the Canadian military budget. (laughs) Um, and, And so, but the question is, is this money well spent? Is it actually helping people or is it just going to a few elites and often to white people, like maybe some of the lawyers who are representing the natives? Uh, and so there's a real question of whether this money and these reparations are actually going to alleviate poverty. There's also the question of government handouts in general. Is it a good thing to encourage people to give them a stipend every year or would it be better to encourage them to go get educated and get out there and, and uh, make something of themselves? Um, And then this is based on some of these perceived injustices in Canada. The main perceived injustice was the residential schools, which were going right up to the 1970s, 1980s, where Native kids were taken off the reservation and uh, taught at a Canadian school. They were given uh, Christian education. This, of course, is uh, highly uh, taboo for, for some people. Um, But when you look back at the administrators of these schools, there were things that were ineptly done. There were times when disease broke out at the school, because just like in any school in the year 1900, you're going to have diseases break out. Um, But most of the people running the schools thought they were doing good. They Mm -hmm. said, I'm taking an illiterate kid. I'm giving them skills. I'm teaching them to be a carpenter. I'm teaching them to sew. And we're going to help them assimilate into Canadian society. So the intention i think was pretty much good and noble even if in the execution it was a little bit 19th century sometime Mm -hmm. Um, but when you look at the number of canadian natives who were massacred by uh european canadians the most they can come up with it is about two dozen so the idea that uh you know canadian natives were massacred by europeans is totally ridiculous so they say, oh, well, maybe we didn't commit genocide here, but we committed cultural genocide. And they use the residential schools as an example of cultural genocide. 
in the book i talk about how that's all been taken much too far as well oh yeah yeah there was a lot of that uh, about a year or so ago and um uh, and a lot of their uh, their narrative about what was happening in the schools was debunked. And I'm sure you address that in your book as well. Yep. Uh, really took that uh, to an extreme, resulted in a great deal of um, you know, people feeling they were justified to uh, uh, deface and destroy uh, church property and things like that. And I am concerned uh, about the reservation system. When we look at that, I see that as if we don't learn a lesson from that, I see that as a pattern that could be utilized in smart cities and that type of thing. You know, there is an effort, uh, again, to try to remove people from their land and to uh, lock us up in cities they've actually got a plan for that globally that uh, we should all be worried about and i guess you're seeing that there in the netherlands as well Uh, you're in the netherlands right correct yeah i am yeah Yeah, i mean partially because i had to leave the united states because if i didn't do my research on dei related topics (laughs) they weren't going to hire me so in some ways i've had to come to exile in europe wow that is that is something isn't it you have to have intellectual exile in order to be able to do history yeah, uh, but that's really where we are now. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been a fascinating discussion. The book is uh, not stolen. The truth about European colonialism in the New World. Uh, uh, Jeff Finn Paul is the author. Uh, Jeff, where can people find this best? Uh, uh, Amazon, or do you have a website that you sell directly? Yeah, it's definitely on Amazon uh, and other major booksellers as well. Okay, and I think you know if you look it up, not stolen, you'll probably that'll be the easiest way to find. It. You'll see the rest of the oh, yeah. subtext there. Thank you so much for joining us. It was great to talk to you, and, and it's very important if we don't understand what history is. Uh, that's one of the reasons why they want to eradicate it because then we are basically putty in their hands it all repeats or rhymes in one way or the other thank you so much jeff appreciate it okay thanks david it was great the david knight show is a critical thinking super spreader if you've been exposed to logic by listening to the David Knight Show. Please do your part and try not to spread it. Financial support or simply telling others about the show causes this dangerous information to spread farther. People have to trust me. I mean, trust the science. Wear your mask, take your vaccine, don't ask questions. Using free speech to free minds. It's the David Knight Show.